you're listening to audio from the West End Community Church in McGregor, Manitoba. Well, this morning we are coming to the end of our study of Jeremiah. And I know that some of you are more excited about that than uh, others. But uh, we, yeah, the, so we're going to, uh, to try to wrap things up today. Um, sorry. Got to get all situated here. And uh, this is, it's very complicated to get it off here. I'm just going to stay here. <laughs> no, no, I can just stay right here. I'm, I'm okay. I don't want to be more distracting than I already am. Um, so as we have been dealing with the book of Jeremiah, we know that um, I mean, we have said it over and over and over again w- what this book is really all about. I mean, it's, it's Jeremiah speaking to the people of Judah. He's saying, turn from your evil ways, turn from your idolatry, turn from your rebellion against God. And if you do that, then God will relent. But if you don't do that, then this is what is going to happen. The Babylonians are going to come. And they are going to run roughshod over you. They are going to destroy your nation. They are going to take you captive. And uh, they are going to decimate your city, your temple, your nation. And that, that is Jeremiah's message in a nutshell. And yet the people do not pay attention. They do not believe that Jeremiah is telling the truth. Um, they don't believe that God is going to do that. And we know as we have gone through the book that that is exactly what does happen in 586 BC. We know that the Babylonians did indeed come. Well, they, come they came about 20 years earlier, but they, um, they basically conquered the entire nation. And then in the last three years or so, they uh, besieged, surrounded Jerusalem and just kind of waited the uh, Judeans out until they finally breached the walls and in 586 BC they just they just destroyed the city they they lowered the temple of the Lord Jesus or, or of God to the ground they stole all the items in there and they took captives more captives than they already had back to Babylon so when you're thinking about the structure, <coughs> excuse me, when you're thinking about the structure of Jeremiah, what you're going to find, and I know that we haven't gone verse by verse, and some of you, again, are very grateful for that. Um, when, you, when you look at the structure of the book of Jeremiah, what you're going to find is that the first 45 chapters deal exclusively and specifically with the people of Judah. Okay, Jeremiah and his messages that come directly from God are speaking directly to the people of Judah, to the people of Jerusalem, and, and talking about their sinfulness, their idolatry. So that's the first 45 uh, chapters of the book. And then you'll notice that there's another um, seven chapters that happen after chapter 45 and what you're going to find we, we're not going to go through all of them we're just going to look deal with the last couple chapters today but what you're going to find <coughs> is that the last seven chapters well more specifically the, the last six chapters from chapter 46 to chapter 51 they don't deal with the people of Judah per se but they deal with the surrounding nations that are around Judah and God's pronouncement of judgment against those people. And then you're going to notice that if you read chapter 52, there's a little bit of a different tone, uh, a little bit of a different tenor, and that's because Jeremiah actually doesn't write that chapter. We're not exactly sure who writes that chapter. Most commentators would believe that it would be the guy who probably wrote what Jeremiah uh, spoke, and that was Baruch, but we're not exactly sure what happens in chapter 52. It's more like, it's like if you're reading a book and there's an appendix at the back, chapter 52 is kind of like an appendix for Jeremiah. Um, So 
we know the story of what has happened in Jeremiah. We know that Jeremiah has been preaching. We know that the people haven't been listening. We know that the Babylonians have come. We know that they have taken thousands of people captive. They have deported them back to Babylon. We know that Babylon is about a thousand miles away from Judah. We know that the Jews are going to spend the next 70 years in captivity. And we know that it is going to be a process for which God intends for them to purge them of their idolatry and their rebellion. And that is what God is using the Babylonians to accomplish. He's using them to accomplish that purpose, to, to humble the, the people uh, of God. That's the first 45 chapters. Now here in, verse, in chapter 46, uh, like I said, begins the pronouncements against the um, against the countries that surround uh, Judah, that surround basically the promised land, uh, Israel, and then the, the southern kingdom of Judah. And uh, the reason why God gives attention to those nations that are surrounding Judah is because um, it seems that those people are culpable as well because they had a hand in helping the Jewish people succumb to idolatry. That's why the Jews got involved in idolatry. Of course, everybody has their own choice. Everybody can choose to turn away or to choose to get involved in idolatry or get involved in sin. We all have that choice. But the neighboring nations around Judah did play a part and that's why there was this pronouncement of judgment there were nations that God was going to judge for their bad influence and then and so that's what we have in chapter 46 to 51 Um, so here if you you can just kind of glance at it on your own in your own personal study time (laughs) but you're going to find that in chapter 46 um, God is going to begin a pronouncement of judgment on Egypt And then, with the succeeding chapters, he is also going to rebuke the Philistines. And the Philistines occupy the territory kind of along the coast of the Mediterranean. If you look on a map, uh, what is today the Gaza Strip. Um, And interestingly enough, the Philistines would not actually be the modern-day Palestinians. Um, I don't know if that's interesting to you or not, but it's... It's interesting to me. The Palestinians, uh, sorry, the Philistines, actually, commentators, historians, don't know where the Philistines went. They, they existed during the time, they kind of came on the scene during the time of David, if you'll remember. And then uh, at some point in the future, they disappeared. The Philistines disappeared. Um, anyway, God makes a pronouncement on the Philistines God also rebukes Syria and specifically Damascus. You're going to read about that in those last six chapters. God is going to re- uh, rebuke the country of uh, Ammon or uh, Ammon. He's going to rebuke Moab. He's going to rebuke Edom. Uh, you'll remember that we talked about the country of Edom in one of this. In, in one of our weeks when we talked about the, the minor prophets. God is going to rebuke all those nations in the closing chapters. He's also going to rebuke a, a nation called Kedar. And then Elam, which occupies what is uh, what would later become southern Persia. And then, after he has gone through all those countries, he is going to spend the last two chapters, chapter 50 and chapter 51 and he is going to um, what we are going to look at today God is going to deal with Babylonia he is going to deal with Babylon and uh, God saves his final rebuke in the book of Jeremiah for the Babylonians so one of the things that uh, as I was going through this one of the things that that struck me and I don't know if, if it strikes you But maybe, perhaps, you are asking yourself this question. If it was God's will to use the Babylonians as the instrument of his discipline to correct the Jewish people because of their rebellion in their idolatry, why then 
after he used them as a tool of discipline, why then would he um, turn around and punish the Babylonians? Have you ever stopped to think about that? Interesting question. I mean, God chose to use the Babylonians, and, and he, he did use them. Why would he use, or why would he choose now, after he had used them for his own glorious purposes, why would he then turn around and punish the Babylonians? And we're going to talk about this a little bit this morning. And for those of you who have a really, um, for those of you who have a really high fairness meter, you know, like you look at things and you go, hmm, that's not fair. That's not fair. You're going to have to just get over that because this story is not fair. I'm just going to say it. This, this story is going to kind of blow your fairness meter out of the water. Um, I, I heard a pastor who was preaching on this passage. He illustrated it this way. And uh, he, he used this story and he kind of used it in two different ways. He said, let's say that you invite your friend over for dinner and while you are having dinner in the dining room, your dog is busy in the kitchen destroying your, uh, destroying your garbage can. And uh, when you discover it, you, get, you go into the kitchen, you realize your dog has gotten into the trash and there's trash all over the kitchen. And so you see the mess and you say to your friend who is over there for dinner and you say, I'm going to clean up this mess. In the meantime, would you mind just taking a little uh, spare newspaper, roll it up and, uh, and just give Rocky a uh, swat on the nose uh, or on the behind, whatever. And, uh, and just, you know, just let him know that this is not uh, acceptable behavior. And so you start cleaning up, and your friend does that while you're, uh, you're busy cleaning. And then when you turn around, you see that he has done that, and you say, hey, what are you doing? Well, your friend says, I I'm just swatting Rocky like you asked me to. Why would you do that? Well, again, you asked me to. What kind of friend are you? Why would you do something like that? That is this kind of story, or this is that kind of story, okay? Just stick with me. There's more to that story in just a little bit. Uh, there's more to the dog story. I'll get to that in a minute. But first, what I want us to do is I want us to start by reading uh, from Jeremiah. So if you have your Bibles, turn to chapter 50 of Jeremiah. We're going to be mostly in Jeremiah chapter 50 today, and we're going to maybe stray into chapter 51 as well. <laughs> but Jeremiah chapter 50, and verse, um, let's start at the beginning, chapter 50 and verse 1. Jeremiah 50 verse 1, it says, The word that the Lord spoke concerning Babylon, concerning the land of the Chaldeans by Jeremiah the prophet, declare among the nations... And proclaim, set up a banner and proclaim, conceal it not, and say, Babylon is taken. Bel is put to shame. Moradak is dismayed. Her images are put to shame. Her, image, her idols are dismayed. For out of the north a nation has come up against her, which shall make her, um, which shall make her land a desolation." And none shall dwell in it. Both man and beast shall flee away. So here God prophesies about the destruction of Babylon. Now, you know, because we have gone through it, we've gone through Revelation, we've, we, uh, we've gone and we've heard about the destruction in Revelation, about the destruction of Babylon. Here, the, this destruction that uh, is, is referenced for us in chapter 50, is the, um, is the first time that Babylon is going to be destroyed. It is going to be laid waste. Jump down, chapter 50, stay in chapter 50, but look at verse 17. <coughs> Israel is a hunted sheep driven away by lions. 
First, the king of Assyria devoured him, and now at last Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, has gnawed his bones. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing punishment on the king of Babylon and his land as I punished the king of Assyria. Why don't we just pause there and uh, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help your word to be very clear this morning. And God, we are dealing with some, some important things. We are dealing with some um, things that maybe um, in some ways are a little bit uncomfortable. And, and I think some, in some ways we can see ourselves in these chapters. And I pray that that actually would be the case, that we would be able to see um, maybe where we have come up short, where we can see the things that we need to, to change in our own lives so that we can be better equipped and better, ser- uh, better able to serve you. That is our prayer this morning, Father. Would your spirit teach us? Speak through your word, speak through me, and uh, speak directly into our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs> well, let's give ourselves just a little bit more historical content uh, or context as we go through um, this, these last couple chapters of, um, of Jeremiah. And we need to give ourselves a little bit of historical context in reference to the city of Babylon or, and, and even the whole empire of Babylonia. The capital city of Babylon um, is located about 75 miles due south of what is modern-day Baghdad. Uh, so it's kind of directly in the heart of the, the nation, the modern-day nation of, of Iraq. Babylon reached the pinnacle of its success and, uh, and, its, and its power during the days of King Nebuchadnezzar. So we're talking about, in Jeremiah, we're talking about mid-6th century. That's kind of the, the, the time that we're talking about. Babylon was then at its pinnacle. And in the days of Neb- King Nebuchadnezzar, the population of the ancient city of Babylon was actually around 500,000 people. Almost the same, uh, maybe just a tiny bit smaller, but almost the same population as Winnipeg. Um, there was a historian that was alive kind of towards the waning uh, to the waning days of Babylon, uh, he was a guy by the name of Herodotus. And Herodotus was this historian who wrote about the Babylonian Empire. And he writes in glowing terms about the splendor of Babylon. And it helps us to understand just about really how great this city really was. Um, Herodotus tells us that the walls around Babylon were about 30 stories high, which is um, about 300 feet. So these walls were 300 feet high. Not only that, but they weren't just kind of, you know, walls in the sense of what we think of as walls. These stone walls, 300 feet, were also very thick. Um, Herodotus estimates that these walls were probably around 87 feet thick. So you have 87 feet wide walls, 300 feet high. Uh, In fact, it's said that the Babylonians actually had chariot races around the city uh, on the walls, and they were able to to accommodate six chariots and their horses uh, abreast. As they went, I would not want to be on the outer or the inner edge. I would just like to be in the middle if I was driving. I wouldn't want to drive a chariot anyway. Let's just be honest. (coughs) Herodotus also says, (coughs) excuse me. (coughs) That Babylon was actually a big square. It was 15 miles. (coughs) Excuse me. (coughs) 15 miles by 15 miles by 15 miles by 15 miles. Um, 60 miles in circumference, 225 square miles, I guess, is what it would be. 
<coughs> the city of Babylon was situated right along the Euphrates River. And the Babylonians diverted a portion of the Euphrates River and they used it as a moat around their walls. And not only did they do that, but they also did something which actually would come to bite them in the behind a little bit later on, is they dug under the city walls and they diverted another portion of the, um, the Euphrates River so that it went through the city, kind of meandered beautifully through the city and, and it was just kind of a, um, an engineering kind of marvel at the time. This is how Herodotus described the city of Babylon and we know from maybe in your school days we know that um, the hanging gardens of Babylon this was during that time they were considered one of the, the seven ancient wonders of the world. This was a marvelous and awe-inspiring kind of city and King Nebuchadnezzar was responsible or his era was responsible for when Babylon was at its height in the Bible Babylon is also a significant city right we read about Babylon all the time in fact if you do the the searching which I did um, Babylon is mentioned 164 times in the book of Jeremiah alone and in the entire Bible, it's mentioned 260 times. There are more references to the city of Babylon than any other city in the Bible apart from Jerusalem. Babylon is portrayed in Scripture um, often, uh, almost always. It's always portrayed as the opposite of Jerusalem. And um, actually, there's an incredibly cool and and really interesting study. We don't have time to do that today. So everybody just calm down. But um, Babylon, is, it's always portrayed as the opposite. Jerusalem is Hebrew for, uh, in Hebrew, it means uh, Yerushala, and that means the city of peace. Babylon means the city of evil. And there's a whole bunch of different references throughout the Bible where these references are just kind of comparing Jerusalem on one side, Babylon on completely the opposite side. It's really interesting. Um, there's a lot more we could say. We're not going to. But what we're reading here in Jeremiah, when, when God pronounces the destruction of Jerusalem, like I said, or the, the destruction of Babylon, like I said, this is the first destruction of Babylon God speaks of it because it's part of his judgment and what we're going to find if you look in the history and you look in in the Bible because we can read it in the book of Daniel in 539 BC the Medes and the Persians link up together and they conquer the nation uh, and specifically the city of Babylon and interestingly you know how they do it they dam up the river Euphrates and then once they've dammed it up they just crawl in the riverbed uh, the dry riverbed into the city and they do it without losing any of their soldiers um, they take the city of Babylon in one night without any losses on their own they enter the city of Babylon and they take it and it's exactly what God said would happen you know what that tells you? Not only the Medes and the Persians were smart and the Babylonians were not as smart. You know what it else tells you? It tells you that God raises up kings and deposes them. When God was done with the Babylonians, he raised up the Medes and the Persians. And that leads us back to the original question that we asked at the beginning. Why did God punish the Babylonians if, in fact, he willfully chose to use them as the rod of his discipline to the Jewish people? That doesn't seem to make sense, does it? Well, uh, go back to the dog illustration, all right? And tell it a little bit different. So you're cleaning up the garbage in your kitchen and your friend is taking care of Rocky. The problem is all you asked him to do was to roll up the newspaper and just kind of whack him once on the or swat him uh, on, the, on the backside or on the nose just 
to make him know that he shouldn't be doing that. But your friend is in the other room just wailing away on your dog with a stick instead of a newspaper, and he's doing it repeatedly and over and over and over again. He's going way overboard. That's what's happening in this story. The reason why God is grieved, the Babylonian uh, is grieved about what the Babylonians are doing, is because they overplayed their hand. They overextended their authority, and they became brutal and they became abusive towards the Jewish people. And it's like what Habakkuk said in his book when he and God were having this conversation. God said. I will deal with the evil of the Chaldeans. I will deal with the, the evil of the Babylonians. When God saw what the Babylonians were actually doing to his people, he said, enough. I wanted you to use, I wanted to use you as the rod of correction, <clears throat> but you've gone overboard. You have mistreated them. You have abused them. And so what we're going to find and what I want you to see is I want you to see, well, let's just kind of go over the, the sins of the, the Babylonians. Let's just go over these four sins of the Babylonians. And uh, I have them there. And uh, yeah, you can just go, thanks, Christina. So here's the four things that I want you to see uh, that God was accusing the Babylonians of, of taking part in. The first one is jubilance. The second one, defiance. The third one, arrogance, and the fourth one, dominance. Okay? And so what we're going to see is God is accusing them of doing these four things. So let's just go through them really quickly together, and then we'll just kind of try to apply it to ourselves here in 2022. So let me start with the first one. Uh, the, the Babylonians were, they were guilty of jubilance. Now, okay. I know that you're feeling a little bit uncomfortable here because you're going, jubilance? I mean, that sounds really good, right? And, uh, and jubilant does exactly mean to be happy, to be overjoyed about something. So I know, you know, like you're inside thinking, jubilance? Like, what kind of church is this? Um, if you're thinking that jubilance is a sin, uh, and you think that you're really happy today, so you're worried that you might be going to hell, that's not what I'm saying. I am not saying that at all. This is specifically what God was accusing the Babylonians of. He was accusing them of being jubilant at the misfortune and the story of the people of God, the people of Judah. The Babylonians were guilty of rejoicing over the misfortune of the Jewish people. Look at chapter 50 and verse 11. Chapter 50 and verse 11. Here's what it says. Um, though you rejoice, though you exult, O plunderers of my, inher uh, my heritage, though you frolic like a heifer in the pasture and neigh like stallions, your mother shall be utterly shamed. And she who bore you shall be disgraced. Behold, she, she shall be the last of the nations, a wilderness, a dry land, a desert because of the wrath of the Lord you shall not be inhabited and shall be an utter desolation <coughs> okay super harsh right but is it true it is actually true because in modern day in 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 today if you were to go to Iraq what you were going to find is that the the place where Babylon was is in Ruins, just like it is pronounced here in, Josh, in Jeremiah chapter 50. Um, there was at one point where Saddam, uh, not Saddam, yeah, Saddam Hussein, uh, he wanted to rebuild Babylon, but he uh, didn't have enough time. Uh, the point of the what, um, the point of what God is saying here through Jeremiah, is that Babylon. Yes, will one day be rebuilt, but we are going to see that in, or we did see that in Revelation chapter 17 and 18 when we went through it last year. But what God prophesies here is that 
This is what indeed does end up happening. Babylon is going to be decimated. The nation is going to be taken over. Um, the, the Babylonians are going to be no more. And the point is that this jubilance over the misfortune of others is that the lesson here is that God frowns on any of us, the Babylonians, you, me, God frowns upon any of us who rejoice over the misfortune of others. Now, I know that m probably most of you are thinking to yourself right now, well, I don't do that. Um, and I would say, I'm super glad that you don't. But what about if somebody is mean to you? What about if somebody mistreats you and then they kind of fall on hard times themselves? Isn't there just a tiny little bit of part of you that maybe will just subconsciously gloat a little bit? Let me give you an illustration. Uh, so here's the scenario. It has nothing to do with the dog. Um, you are driving along the highway, uh, just poking along at the speed limit or maybe just a little bit over and then you see in your rear view mirror this speck in the distance and then all of a sudden before you can just even say Bob's your uncle this car just streaks past you and it must be going 200 miles an hour like it is going so fast and you go wow that's super dangerous and then but you just keep driving you're not thinking to yourself uh and then you don't give it any other thought. But two miles down the road, what should you see but blue and red lights on the side of the highway and this car that streaked past you just two miles earlier is pulled over as well, getting a ticket. Do you, in your mind, say, oh, Lord, just help that cop to be nice to those people in that car? Or do you say, <laughs> serves you right. Which one is it? A couple of years ago, Claudette and I were in Edmonton. Uh, I think it was for the AGC conference. It doesn't matter. We, but we went into Edmonton one night to visit my brother, who was there as well. And uh, the, the road between uh, Stony Plain and Edmonton uh, is... I think the speed limit is 100 or 80. It's, and, and there's lots of cameras around there. Anyway, so you have to be really careful. So I was obeying the speed limit, almost. And, uh, but there was, a, there was a car in front of me that was obeying as well. Uh, a truck, I think. And then, and then there was a car behind me that was very impatient you could tell he like he was riding my backside really really close and then finally when he had the opportunity swerved out dangerously and then came around swerved around me and then got up right next to the car that was actually impeding my progress and rolled down his window and made a very rude gesture to the car that was in front of me and then the blue and red lights came on in that vehicle that had been gestured. And I thought, I have to admit, I laughed a little bit. I mean, uh, and, and I don't know, I'm, I'm, maybe I'm just showing my depravity, by, but I did laugh. I laughed at the misfortune of this guy. I mean, this is a silly illustration. But what the point that I am trying to make here is that God does not want us to delight in the misfortune of others. Obviously, speeding and, and those sorts of things are silly things. But often, I think, what happens when we see people who have treated us poorly and then they fall on hard times, our instinct, our human instinct, is to is to kind of chuckle, is to kind of laugh, or is to kind of go, well, that just serves you right. And the reason why we do that is A, because we think that they deserve it, or B, we think that they're better, that we're better than they are. But the truth is that neither one of those things is right. 
Proverbs 17 verse 5 says, Whoever gloats over disaster will not go unpunished. Proverbs 24 says, Do not rejoice when your enemy falls. When he stumbles, do not let your heart rejoice, <coughs> or the Lord will see and disapprove. Obadiah chapter 1 verse 12. You should not look down on your brother in the day of his misfortune or rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction. In other words, what those verses are saying to us is that God does not like people. Uh, he does not like cheering from the sidelines when someone, even someone who has done you wrong, experiences misfortunes of their own. We are not to ever celebrate another's misfortune or rejoice over their troubles. Uh, I just did that this week to be just full disclosure. There was an instance where someone or something happened with a certain something and I just, I laughed and I said, well, that serves you right. Shame on me. We must never celebrate misfortune or rejoice over troubles. In fact, I would say this, and heed this really closely. The next time you think to yourself, well, they just get, they got what they deserved, you remember that the Lord Jesus Christ went to the cross so that you wouldn't get what you deserve. And what, and I wouldn't get what I deserve. See, what we need to be more than anything else is we need to be instruments of God's grace, don't we? Sure we do. Luke chapter 6, verse 28, Jesus says this, Bless those who curse you and pray for those who mistreat you. When God calls us to, what God calls us to in in our Christian lives, it, it may not come easily it may not be convenient and it may be counterintuitive to the way that the world thinks and the world operates. This world that operates with the idea of just look out for yourself. The system of get even before people uh, get even with you. People deserve what's coming to them. The Christian, God says, that's not, that's not for you. We're not to rejoice We're not to be jubilant over the the misfortune of others. Even if you've done wrong, even if they've done you wrong, we're to pray for them, we're to bless them. The Babylonians rejoiced. They rejoiced over the misfortune of the Jewish people. And this was part of the, the indictment against the Babylonians. Here's the second one. Um, not only jubilance, but I would say that the Babylonians were in defiance against God. Look at verse 29 of chapter 50. <laughs> Here's what it says. Summon archers against Babylon. All those who bend the bow and camp around her, let no one escape. Repay her according to her deeds. Do to her according to all that she has done, for she has proudly defied the Lord the Holy One of Israel. To defy means to go up against something, uh, to be in opposition against someone or something. And it can be used in a, in a positive way, right? I mean, you can talk about people who get sick and they defied the odds or they defied the disease and they fought back against it uh, and they beat it and they recovered. And that's, that's a good thing. Um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel chapter 3. They are accused of not bowing down to Nebuchadnezzar. And they say, do what you will with us, but we will not bow down. And um, these guys were faithful to the true and the living God. They said, we're not going to bow down, Nebuchadnezzar. And God spared them from that terrible fate. In Daniel chapter 3, Verse 28, it says this. They, meaning Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, trusted in God and, set us, uh, and they set aside slash defied the king's command. So there are good ways of defying, right? But there are also 
bad ways. Anytime that you see, uh, like in, it says in verse 29, uh, yeah, 29, uh, repay her according to her deeds, do it to her according to all that she has done, for she has proudly defied the Lord. <clears throat> Anytime you see the word defied or defiance and the Lord in the same sentence, usually not a good thing. This is what the God was accusing the Babylonians of doing. They were in defiance against the Lord. Think about, um, think about in the New Testament. Think about Paul. Remember the story in Acts chapter 9? His conversion story when he's on the road to Damascus. And then he sees this bright light and he has this conversation with Jesus. And what Jesus says... To him, it says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And then in the New King James, interestingly, it's not in some of the other versions. I'm not sure why. <laughs> but in the New King James, this is what Jesus says. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Um, and then it says, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. Um, the goads... It was a, uh, this was a tool that farmers used. I love it when I lecture you about being farmers or things about farming. This is so ironic. Anyway, this goad was a big long stick, probably about eight feet long. On one side was a blade, and what the blade was used was to kind of scrape um, clay off of the plow when they were uh, plowing a field with oxen. The other part, the other end of the, the stick was just filled with these uh, sharp um, objects, you know, like sharp, jagged edges. Those were the goads. And the goads were um, meant to motivate the, the oxen to just keep going. Um, and the oxen, not being the smartest animals in the world, they would start kicking against the goads. And usually what would happen uh, when they would do that was they would cause themselves some injury. Which begs the question, why would they use them in the first place? But that, yeah, we'll ask them later. Uh, but Jesus uses this when he confronts Paul and he says, Look, Paul, I've been trying to get your attention for a long time, but you just keep kicking against me. And the more you keep kicking the self, the worse it's getting for yourself. The worse that you're injuring yourself. Why are you making it so hard on yourself? And let me just ask you something. Are you, this morning, kicking back against the Lord Jesus? Maybe that's something that you are struggling with today. Why are you making it so hard on yourself? Maybe it is God trying to get your attention today for maybe for a long time now, and we just keep kicking against God, and we're kicking against the goads. Why don't we just stop kicking, and why don't we just surrender? I mean, how many injuries does it take before we realize God's trying to get our attention? How many broken relationships is it going to take? How many broken marriages is it going to take? How many broken churches are, is it going to take before we stop kicking against the goads and we just surrender? And we, we listen to what God is trying to get our attention about. And we finally realize, hey, my life is pretty miserable right now. Because I'm not surrendering. The Babylonians were in defiance against God, like a lot of people around our world today. And they're making it miserable for themselves. Proverbs 13, verse 5 says this The way of the transgressor is hard. The Babylonians were making life miserable for themselves, just like a lot of people do when they try to kick against the goads or when they try to kick against God. So I would say this. One other lesson we can learn from the Babylonians is not only don't be happy about the misfortune of others, but just stop kicking. Stop being defiant and just surrender. Here's the third one. Arrogance. Um, Chapter 50 and verse 31. Take a look at it with me. <clears throat> Behold, I am against you, O proud one, declares the Lord God of hosts. For your day has come, the time when I will punish you. The proud one shall stumble and fall with none to raise him up. But I will kindle a fire in his cities, and it will devour all that is around him. 
I know we're up against the clock here, but let me just say, um, unlike jubilance, which in most cases is fine, arrogance, pride, it is never fine. Someone accuses you of being proud, <laughs> take a very close look because pride is an issue. In fact, I would say that pride is an issue in almost every sin that we take part in, that we give into, that we commit against the Lord. It, it is born in pride. I would say pride is actually probably one of the oldest sins that, um, that ha ever happened. I mean, before the creation of the world, what, what happened? Lucifer fell. Why did he fall? Because he was proud. There's one occasion in Matthew chapter 18 where Jesus, Jesus' disciples were having this conversation about who would be the greatest among them. They go to Jesus with the question, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus just you know, like he always does, just kind of cuts to the heart of the matter and he grabs a, a little kid and he says, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jeremiah, God through Jeremiah is saying, the Babylonians, you are proud, you are You are arrogant. You believe in yourselves more than anything else. And you will be humbled. Don't go around trying to promote yourself. Let God do that. The Babylonians were guilty of that. Here's the last thing. Dominance. They oppressed the Jewish people. <clears throat> they did not just discipline them. They oppressed them. They exercised brutal dominance over the people, the Jewish people. Read Psalm, the last few Psalms. By the rivers of Babylon, where we sat down, it talks about some of the things that the Jewish people endured at the hands of the Babylonians. And it is not for the faint of heart. Read Lamentations and see what the Babylonians did to the people of Israel or the people of Judah. They were oppressed at the hands of the Babylonians. And I know that we could, maybe one could argue, isn't that all a part of war? Perhaps it is, but nevertheless, God took note of how oppressed the people of Judah were. And I would say this, that God always takes note of those who are oppressed and those who suffer in the world. Psalm 146 verse 7 says this, He upholds the cause of the oppressed. Deuteronomy 10:18 He defends the cause of the fatherless in the widow. Psalm 9 verse 9 The Lord is a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. You know what that's saying? God doesn't want people to dominate one another. Not in the sense of superiority. I mean obviously there are always going to be chains of command, right? It happens in every job. Yes, there are those things. There are leadership structures. We understand those things. But in the sense of superiority, dominance, being oppressive and abusive and overbearing, these are the things the Babylonians were being accused of. And Jesus, in Matthew chapter 20, calls out all those Gentiles who were lording authority over the people. He said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and, the high, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And then he says this, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Those four sins were the things that God was accusing the Babylonians of. The sins of the Babylonians, jubilance over the misfortune of others, defiance against God, arrogance, pride, dominance, oppression of others. So in the last 
two minutes, and I, and I mean it when I say two minutes. The last two minutes, I just want to replace the sins of Babylon with the signs of a godly life. Because here's the things that we shouldn't do. Here's the things that we should do. So if we look at the signs of a godly life, what we need to replace jubilance with is we need to replace jubilance over the misfortune of others with compassion towards other people. We should never rejoice in the misfortune of others, even if we've done wrong. We pray, and we, even if they've done you wrong, we pray and we give them to God, but we don't rejoice over them in their misfortune. We show compassion. It's always a good choice to be compassionate. We need to replace defiance against God with surrender to God. And what some of us really need to do is we need to finally yield our lives to the lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to stop kicking against the goads, and we need to just say, Lord, I need you to be the Lord of my life. Stop kicking and surrender. We need to replace arrogance or our pride with humility. We need to replace dominance with servanthood. If we do those things, we'll be well on the way to having an outwardly and overtly godly life. That's the reason why Jesus washed the disciples' feet at the Last Supper. You know what he did? He wanted to model servanthood. Even though he's our Lord, he wanted to model before his disciples and before us what is preserved in Scripture, the idea that being a servant is an honorable thing. And that is what God calls us to. So may we learn from the sins of Babylon and may God help us to exemplify him on our way to a godly life. May, we, may God help us to exemplify him in all that we do and all that we say. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the book of Jeremiah. And I thank you for his faithfulness towards you to, in the face of opposition, to the face of danger to his own life, to the, da- uh, to the dangers of just being so overcome with the sins of his people. Father, he just, he just kept continuing to obey. Thank you for his faithfulness. May we be as faithful. Heavenly Father, would you just guide us as we leave here this morning, thank you for um, just this day as we look out over a new time, uh, a, a new fall schedule. And Lord, would you just be with us today as we just uh, eat together. We pray for the food. We thank you. We, uh, we just ask that you would bless it to us, to our hearts and to our bodies. And you would bless the fellowship that we have around the table and and. Uh, and Father, I just I thank you so much that um, you are the Lord of this place and these people. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.